0: We talk about failing upward and what that looks like. Failing upward means you've got grit, determination, and persistence. You don't give up. It didn't work today. That doesn't mean it's not going to work tomorrow or the next day or the next, but you're continually trying to better yourself.
1: Welcome to Friends of Build Magazine. I'm your host, Ted Bainbridge. I've been traveling the world and working in publications for 30 years. In 2016, we launched our first issue of Build Magazine, a publication dedicated to high end home construction, renovation, and the innovative experts that make this possible. This podcast was created to have some fun and explore those who have taken on the challenge of building luxury homes in demanding locations. From navigating logistics and construction to excavating the earth, we want to learn more about these people and how their projects became cover worthy. So sit back. Relax and enjoy the show. So welcome to another episode of Friends of Build Magazine. I'm Ted Bainbridge and I'm excited to be with Patty Jolber of Compliments Home Interior in beautiful Bend, Oregon. Patty was part of our very first edition. She's been a client a long time and she does some incredible work. And she's also introduced me to a group of consultants. Is that a fair? Consultants, coaches? coaches and consultants. Yes. Okay. And I was just on their podcast yesterday and they're doing some just phenomenal stuff around the country. And how did you get connected with them?
0: She started with a company called uh, Design Success University, and she did online classes okay. that you would download and you would take her courses. And I think the piece that was missing was the courses were all self-directed and there wasn't really any coaching around it. And then from there, she evolved into Gail Dobe Coaching and Consulting, and it evolved to what people needed. It evolved into Gail starting to coach, starting to create these programs for people who were at a certain level at the, mostly they were in the, probably the 750 to a million dollar range. And she was helping them to learn the process, how to grow your business, how to evolve, how to do everything from hiring correctly, Um, when you got to a certain level, to creating a culture, creating a vision, creating all of these things that we don't think about in design. We just want to give our clients the best experience possible. But Gail has evolved this whole process into teaching people how to run the back end of their business, the business end of the business, and it's become... Um, she's become a powerhouse in the industry as well as, uh, her co-founder Aaron Weir. They have developed together this whole program that is amazing and I'm excited to be a part of it.
1: So I have a greater appreciation for the talents that you ladies, and I say ladies, cause there's a bunch of men in the, in the industry, but correct. But your profession, because my wife and I are building a place in Scottsdale right now and we hired an interior designer and you look at the, the price tag and you go, oh man, can I afford it? Can I do this? Can I do that? And it's just, it looks like a, a line item cost and it's a big one. So you go, you're already nervous building because, especially now, because things are so expensive.
0: And it's not going away.
1: <laughs> right. And, and yet it was the best decision we made was hiring. And this is the fourth house we built. So it's not like we're rookies, but still you look at it as a line item. And then we got the design book and all the steps that this gal, her name's Kristen Hazen down in Scottsdale. She just made our life so much easier. And especially when you're an extremely busy person, like you know how much I travel and and all the places I go to have our interior designer look after the nuts and bolts of Making sure that the house is what we expect it to be, and if you're going to spend that kind of money, you want it to be perfect.
0: You you do, and even you know, even at a lower level, you want your house to be what you want it to be. It's the biggest investment you'll ever make, whether you're a first time home buyer or you're buying your fifth home in Aspen. You want your home to be beautiful, and and you know, interior design is yes for definitely a certain level of clientele that said good design should not be exclusive to somebody at that high level and and it, the reason i say that is when you walk into a house that's been poorly designed you understand how uncomfortable it can be when a television is put too t- too high. It's ergonomically bad, and a good designer will make sure that your television is not too high. A good designer will make sure that there is flow within your house, within your living room, within your dining room, that there is an area rug that's not too big or an area rug that's not too small, and that the, the, the flow of your house is going to um come together and they will also make sure that you know your house the personality your personality and the house's personality are melded it's not you don't want a tutor style home that has a modern interior it doesn't feel right so it's up it to would them.
1: be awkward
0: it would be awkward so so a good designer is going to help you meld both your personality and the house's personality into a coherent place of flow.
1: So when you're, when you're sitting down with a client, like I said, I mean, I'm just going through because I'm going through the process. And one of the things that our builder and architect said is you want to make sure that the interior designer is involved from the very beginning
0: that's a smart builder and a smart architect. And well,
1: no. and now, now Patty, I can see the importance of that. And even with our last house, the builder had an interior designer, uh, Jim and Christy Yozamp of mm-hmm. Pack West. So, right. so we had that. But it's been fifteen years, twelve years since we last sure. built. And honestly, I've forgotten all the details. And there is a ton of details every day. Every day,
0: it's decision fatigue. Yeah, and honestly, that—that's
1: uh, well put. Uh, yes,
0: and designers. <laughs> alleviate that decision fatigue because we don't show you a thousand choices we show you 3. Yeah. Because we get to know you on a gut level and this is going to sound way weird but I always tell my clients you know it's like I'm in your underwear drawer I know a lot about you. Right. <laughs> I know who you are deeply so that I can do the very best job for you. I want to get to know you and your style and your, do you have grandkids? How old are your kids? How, you know, how many pets do you have? All of those things are really important. I do a lifestyle questionnaire before I ever step foot in anybody's house so that I have a better concept of who they are and the direction they want to go.
1: Well, I know everybody is different. How long does it take people to actually trust you, like be vulnerable with you because oh. you can't do anything for somebody until you're, until you're vulnerable. Because if you're guarded, then they're not going to answer, they're going to answer the questions the way they think you want to hear it as opposed to what's important to them.
0: I, I would say definitely depending on the client, there are clients who keep you at arm's length the entire time.
1: That can't be much fun for you.
0: It's not. It ends up... um They're really not our ideal client. We really like to have a great interview. We start with a one-on-one interview with our business manager, and then we have a full hour to two-hour discussion with clients, that first consultation. And, And that's where we decide, is this a good fit? They may think it's a good fit, but we might feel like you know, there, 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 there's some hesitation there. There's red flags and learning to listen. And it's taken me many years to listen, but it, learning to listen to your gut and listen to, hey, is this person going to ever be able to trust me if they are condescending to their wife, or if the wife, you know, is excluding the husband and asking us to keep secrets. That's not our ideal client. We work with integrity through and through, and we want we want it to be a partnership of all parties involved. So we want to make sure that we are doing the best job possible.
1: So when you got into the profession, did you know you are going to be a marriage counselor?
0: I did not. <laughs> I did not. it probably
1: happens on a oh, regular basis. On a
0: regular basis. Yes, it does. And that's, you know, it's part of my coaching as well as I become a counselor <laughs> oh, and a marriage counselor.
1: <laughs> so what do you tell people? Like, what do you tell other, when you're coaching other interior designers because this is a this is probably as important as the design
0: oh it's or more or more yes
1: so how do you how do you educate and coach your team
0: you have a sense of it these are mostly empaths i would say most interior designers are empaths we feel other people's feelings so deeply it you saw me with a client Yep. 20 minutes ago. Yep. And, and I expressed how distressed I was that her project was not moving along as quickly as we'd like it. And she appreciated my empathy that I could feel her pain. Um, we've been in her house now for over a year. And so she is distressed, understandably, and, but understanding. And so I, I, I think that you have to come at everything with empathy and integrity and if you can be authentic in both of those then then you're golden. And I also I have a I have um a way of doing business that I only work with kind people. When I opened my business, I had worked with some really kind of angry or not kind people yeah. to me when I when I first moved to Bend and so I, that was my commitment to myself was that my subs and my, my employees, my subs and my vendors all had to be kind people and further, and that needs to tumble downward into my clients. So that, that's, that's one of my main tenants of my business, my values.
1: So one of the things that I learned from a, from a really good friend of mine who owns several businesses He said he would wake up in the morning and he would do the lousy things first. Oh, yeah. So he would make those ugly phone calls, eat the frog, right? Yep. How challenging is that to train people in the industry that are now coaching clients of yours? Mm. Because our brains won't shut off. So if we've got that ugly phone call or that uncomfortable conversation and we've got to make it or that client that you feel like you're disappointing, you feel their pain, but you're doing the best that you can do, but some things are out of your control. How hard is it? The, more, the quicker people make decisions and move on. I've got an employee who, who just ended a relationship that she knew was over over a year ago, and she finally made the decision, and she was relieved. Yes. And it was like, because our brain keeps tw- all the time until you deal with it.
0: You know, I think there's a, um, I I believe it was Michael Jordan that said when he makes a decision, he does it quickly. And I don't know, are you familiar with Mel Robbins? No. Oh, she's a wonderful, she has a wonderful podcast. Um, She's written a book called 54321, and 54321 refers to everything you do. If you get up in the morning and you hate getting up, you count 54321 and you Get your tush out of bed. And if you've got to make that ugly phone call, it's 54321, pick up the phone. So you give yourself five seconds to let yourself know, okay, at the end, at one, I need to do this. And so <coughs> it's it's that same theory of eat the frog, do the hard stuff, do the hard stuff first, because once you get it done, it's out of your brain. Yeah. If you're stewing on it for months and or hours or days. It's exhausting. And you can't process more than I mean, our brains really, we, we, we stew on the hard stuff. So if we can let go of it, and move on to the easier decisions, because we do as designers, we make a 1000 decisions a day by the end of the day, I have decision fatigue. When my husband says, what do you want for dinner?
1: Oh, so you're exhausted even though these decisions are for clients, not for you. Of course, because
0: I'm making the decision. I'm saying these are the three right fabrics for your sofa. These are the three right tiles for your bathroom. You You get to choose one of these three. It's a lot of decisions. And then I have three employees who are four employees or five employees who are you know, I had an employee texting me this morning at 7.30 asking me what color of, of uh, call to use. So I'm constantly making decisions about what needs to happen and what needs to, um, yeah, just constantly making decisions
1: so all how day do, long. how do you deal with failure? Because if you're making all those decisions, they're not always going to be right.
0: Absolutely. And um, forgiveness. I am a very forgiving person, including to myself. I'm not perfect. I've never professed to be perfect. I'm not a perfectionist, which is unusual in this profession. Most of, most of my coaching clients are perfectionists, and they're very hard, and they hold on to that um, failure. They hold it up as they're a failure, not the decision was a failure, and when you can look at the behavior instead of the person- I feel like that's, that's, that's the best thing you can do. And so for myself, I realize I have decisions that were failures. I, I hired a person a couple years ago, and that was a, it was a bad decision. And I held on to her too long, and that was a bad decision. That's okay. I forgive myself for doing that. I learned things from her. She learned things from me. We moved apart, and she moved on, and that's great. It, it, but it, it, you do have to forgive yourself. And I am a firm believer in empathy, not only for my clients, but for
1: myself. One thing I always tell people, and by the way, you're going to meet Trisha Isabee from Kelowna. You are going to love her because she's a big thinker and she is not, her goal is not to be perfect. Uh, her goal is to be accomplished and she's incredible at what she does. Wow. Uh, and I put her in touch with Gail and Gail met her in Montreal a couple oh, of weeks wonderful. ago. And oh, she's gonna be at the conference and she's a rock star.
0: Can't wait to meet her.
1: You just listening to what you say. Um, because some there are people out there that are perfectionists and they and and they I mean you've gotta get things done and it's gotta be it's gotta be right. Because it's, you don't wanna look at something crooked on somebody's mantle. No.
0: But you do also, you know, I, I prior to um, starting coaching with Gail, um, I, I did group coaching with another uh, mentor and something he said stuck with me and to this day, and that is 80% has to be good enough. You have to recognize when to move on. You're running a business. This is not your own personal home. You cannot hold on to perfection. And in fact, I had a client that I was coaching yesterday, and she said, Well, but I have to check every pillow that comes in and I have to make sure. And I I said, No, what you really need to do is teach the next designer your design aesthetic. That's right. So you can delegate and elevate so that you can let go. You need to be able to not only run your business, you need to be in the business as well as working on it. And you aren't going to have time if you are that obsessed.
1: And if you want to build a company, If you want to build a good lifestyle and and job, then you can be that extra 20%. But if you want to build a company, you have to empower people to take the ball and run with it, teach them, coach them, educate them, work with them. But at some point, you got to give it up and go, they're not going to always make the decision that you would make. Correct. But if their heart's in the right spot, then we're going to make some wins and some losses.
0: Exactly. And you have to decide financially, at what point you allow, your, you allow your employees to make a $500 decision or a $1,000 decision, at whatever level you are, you allow them to make those decisions so that, again, it's not your decision fatigue. Allow them to make decisions and allow them to fail because failure is good. We learn from failure. You and I were talking about this the other day, yeah. how we learn from failure. You know, our kids didn't learn how to ride a bike without falling off and skinning their knees.
1: So why are, why is the younger generation so afraid to fail? They're paralyzed by it.
0: And I'll tell you, here's my theory on yeah. that is as parents, we've done a horrible job. Everybody got a blue ribbon. Yep. So they were told, "Hey, you're super you're you're amazing because yep. you showed up." Nobody was even allowed to compete. They didn't keep scoring games for a long time. No, they're definitely winners and losers yes. and there are winners and losers all through life, whether all the way from the presidential election down to winning a job in a design, you know, firm. you
1: winning a date. Yes. Kids are afraid to ask kids out yes. because, Oh, I don't want to get my feelings hurt. Getting your feelings hurt is part of the growth of figuring out who you are. Exactly. If, if, if you mentioned riding a bike, how many times did we ride a bike and come home and our knees are all scraped oh, up right. and there's blood all over the place? That's all part said, of the process.
0: Put back teen on it and suck it up. Right. right. <laughs> we didn't go to the hospital for every little hangnail. No. And it, so, and, and, you know, now we sound old, of course, <laughs> and we are, but... That said, I do really I don't know about
1: you. I'm 25. My <laughs> brain says I'm 25. Mine
0: does too. I thought that the other day. Yeah. <laughs> I was I woke up and I went, wow, I feel really good. And then I got out of bed. <laughs> My back hurt. <laughs> then you said but, five, four, three, two, <laughs> two one. one. Yeah, that's exactly. Right. That's right. Yeah. 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 No, you got that it. right.
1: Uh, so what do we do with the younger generation? How do we encourage them and 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 motivate them and lead by example for them so that they go, hey, you know what, it is okay to fail.
0: I think we celebrate our failures as much as we do our successes. God, I'd be doing that
1: 24 (laughs) seven.
0: Well, I think we all do, but you know, what makes our successes that much sweeter is when we have failed. You know, I've had jobs where I've had clients that weren't happy with me, and I, I do everything I can and I still can't make them happy because something went wrong and it's bitter in their mouth. That's okay. I know I've done the best I can. And then guess what? I've had jobs where my sub let me down. I had a tile job where the sub did a terrible job. I, I lost the, uh, the builder as a client. I lost the client who was getting ready to build a giant home. And it absolutely devastated me. But I learned from those failures. I learn how to mitigate it. I use a new tile guy. I, you know, you find you find the right people to surround yourself with, especially in this industry. It's we are so dependent on other people to help to help lift us up that it's crucial that we um, learn from our failures and don't put blinders on. That we actually uh, learn learn from those mistakes that we make. That those hard mistakes.
1: So I'm a huge advocate, a huge advocate for when some something falls apart and it's either my fault or it's not my fault. Uh, but I always take the burden mm-hmm. of it is my fault because if I'm going to be involved, then I need to make sure that everything is executed properly. But it doesn't always happen. Correct. I'm just such a huge advocate of dealing with it up front because I think... When things don't go the right way, that's when people go, you know, it didn't go the right way, but I like how you dealt with it because I know other things aren't going to go the right way at some point in time. And you're the person I want to be in the trenches with because at least I know that you're consistent, reliable, even though some things are going to happen that you don't control, but how you dealt with it. I think some of those times the tile guy creates a win with the builder because the builder looks at you and go... You're the type of woman I want to... And I'm not saying that that was the case.
0: It wasn't in that instance. Yeah. I didn't deal with it well. And I, I take full responsibility yeah. that I backed up my <laughs> tile guy instead of backing up the builder. Instead of saying, you know what? You're absolutely right. Let me buy new tile and I will bring in a new tile guy. I didn't do that. I backed up the tile guy who made an excuse and I passed that excuse on and it was the wrong thing to do. And I again it was my failure i take 100% responsibility for it and uh, but guess what that was a huge learning lesson
1: i uh, i did a podcast so so in doing these i learned stories about people and it, they're always so cool there was a guy in canada and his name's peter raja and peter owns a cabinet company and when he first started in the business and i i did a podcast which is how i learned about this he was, he was doing trusses and framing for somebody in, not Walla Walla, it might have been Winthrop. I think it was Winthrop. So, okay. you know, kind of upper Washington state. And he had the trusses were off or the framing was off by something like uh, a foot. So, it wasn't enough, but it was enough. And he had it for like five houses, and this is when he first started out. He had, had the lumber packages and everything pre-built, and it was off by a foot, so it was wasted. And so, so he gets down there, and it's like a Friday or something like that, and the builder is screaming at him. And he goes, okay, so he goes to the lumber yard, and he gets, he gets enough wood. Fortunately, he was able to make, it, make new stuff, and he had to eat the bad stuff. And the builder looked at him and goes, Man, nice job. And he ended up building something like 200 houses with this guy yeah. because the guy went, Okay, there was a screw up, but you handled it and it didn't affect me. You dealt with it quickly. And it's just like, That's the coolest stuff because that's what we exactly. want. Exactly.
0: And 99% of the time I have done that. And that one time I did not. But well, that's always- okay. You learned from it. Absolutely. And, and I did. I learned. Exactly, how, how, what mistake I made and how I could have done it better. And I, yeah, I always want to do better. So I'm not perfect. I always want to do better.
1: So, and (laughs) I always tell people, look, we're not brain surgeons. Nobody's dying here. Right. So let's keep, so that's my next question is how do you keep decisions in perspective? How do you keep them so that we minimize the amount of drama? Because so many people out there will blow the, mind, the smallest thing into something catastrophic. And it's like, hold on. First of all, I don't like dealing with those clients. So I end up firing them because I go, I'll never make you happy. And I don't like stress in my life because I control me. Yeah. So how do you manage that?
0: Um, exactly like you said, dealing with it head on. I do have a client who... um I'm just finishing up a job and there was a lot of drama on this job and the drama was created by one of my employees who's no longer there. And so I've had, I've taken over the job and every single step of the way I have said, not a problem. I'll fix it. Not a problem. I'll fix it. I, I have taken care of these people. And now when I see them every single time I see them, they say, thank you thank you. Thank you for doing such a beautiful job. Thank you for creating this incredible home for us. So yes, again, I learned from my mistake and I take care of every single thing. And I understand that these people are spending a lot of money with me. They want a job that is beautiful and well done. And they, but, but they also do understand the very weird world we're living in right now where there are people with mental health issues. I I have a tile guy whose son has some mental health issues who didn't show up for two weeks. I had to figure out, I I had to pivot (laughs) that, you know, the, the word of the pandemic is pivot. pivot, I had to pivot and find somebody else to come and finish this job because it wasn't happening. And so I did, I figured it out. I made it, made it happen. And that's, and, and people appreciate effort. So if you're making the effort and you're showing them, Hey, I'm doing this, I'm making this happen. Yes. It's going to put us behind a little bit, but I am making it happen. So that's, you know, I think again, and forgiveness and empathy with our, with ourselves is huge. And hopefully you have clients who like your, like your, uh, friend's client, Yeah understand and see the bigger picture. And they're able to see when you do make the effort.
1: Part, part of my brain always goes to, if you're dealing with reasonable people, they'll be reasonable. And, and how you react to things causes what, how they're going to react. Correct. And I'm always a big fan for when something goes wrong, they are business owners more than likely your clients are business owners. They've, yeah, I mean, they've hit a certain level of success, which is who we've got as clients in Build Magazine. And I always look at my team and I go, just ask them, if 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 you can make it rel- relative to their business, how do they deal with that client when you've got a situation and the tile guy doesn't show up, or you're the builder and the roofer doesn't show up, how do you deal with that in your business? Because if they can understand from their perspective as opposed to like in my world, you know, there there's something with the ad or there, you know, we don't get too many calls, but every once in a while we do. And I just think that it's if you can have a reasonable conversation with somebody, most of the time the rhetoric just dies down and they go, Oh yeah, okay. I mean, at the end of the day, did anybody die? No.
0: No.
1: Are we gonna make it right? We'll make it right. But let's not let's not, you we'll know, labor the point. Yeah. Let's make it easy to make it right as opposed to um coming aggressively you know you we talked about people from the east coast they can come aggressively at situations it's kind of like would you just just hold on for a minute let's just have a discussion about this
0: exactly exactly i do i have a client right now who has decided we are evil incarnate and rather than coming to me and saying hey how can we deal with this reasonably he's already lawyered up and oh, know, ready to go to mitigation yeah. or yeah uh mediation and and that's fine you know you're gonna have those and you again it's a live and learn situation
1: <laughs> so these are all first world problems and they are. you you've told me that your i think it was your grandfather came from portugal yes so talk about a tougher like we're both baby boomers. And I, you know, we were talking and I grew up in Toronto, and I had a bunch of Italian friends, German friends, um, people from the old country, and the craftsmanship that they brought over here, which is another part of the equation, we're losing those people because they're retiring and nobody's filling the, the void. But what did you learn from your grandfather? Because that's a whole lot tougher than we've got a client who's mad about something, And to think that they came on a boat and started a brand new life and would never, they didn't have technology, so they would never talk to their parents again.
0: No. Well, my grandfather was 15 and he stowed away on a boat. He was one of 12 children and he um, ended up, I believe he ended up- He stowed away? He stowed away. Ended up in Puerto Rico and he was told not to stay on the East Coast because he would be a Portuguese and he would be a fisherman. Okay. Okay. And so to go to the West Coast where he would be Portuguese. Okay. And again, this was in the early. 50s? Oh, no, no. We're talking. I guess not. Early 1900s.
1: Oh, so he My
0: dad was born in 27. Okay. And he was the last of four kids. So I believe it was early 1900s. Okay. And he made his way. He started as. So this
1: is before the World Wars. Oh, yeah. Oh, all right. Way before, Different. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. He came um, very, you know, that was pretty brave. Think about that.
1: <laughs> so why did he come?
0: Because he was one of 12 kids and there was, he was living in the Azores. He was okay. on the island of Madeira and there was nothing, nothing for him. And so he made his way across the United States. He, he started cooking in Boston and crept across the united states finally he started a um a, a like a green grocer kind of not a store but sort of a a traveling green grocer for restaurants a, a food distributor <laughs> okay. these days but okay. he was distributing fresh produce and meats and he um, met my grandmother, and I believe in Idaho, and then they came across to Oregon, and he started uh, grocery stores. He started Roger's Brothers Grocery Stores. So he brought a couple of brothers over and a sister. I believe he brought six overall, six of his siblings over from Portugal.
1: But not at the same time. They, no. He just stowed away, and then...
0: Right. And then later, as he earned money, he yeah. would bring them over, and then he and his no brothers... No Yes yeah yeah so so he was he, the entrepreneur's entrepreneur, oh my gosh, and he so he started that he started the Bank of Oregon um he also so in Lake Oswego, there is a large park called George M. Rogers Park, and that was my grandfather. He was the original green person. he recognized there needed to be green space, and he donated five acres of land and built by hand the there's a large basalt. Uh, basalt rock wall that's all the way around this. And he and I believe one of his brothers helped, but they donated the land and um, it was pretty incredible. And so his house, his and my grandmother's house is still there. It's on Wilbur Street in Lake Oswego. And it is um, my cousins have It And it's now in the Historical Society because it was done by a very famous architect. And I wish I could remember that it's a Northwest architect, but it's built out of basalt. And it's just, it's a beautiful old house and I have great memories of it.
1: What an awesome story.
0: Isn't that a great story? I had
1: no idea. Yeah. And as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, well, if you came in 1910, like my grandfather was born in 87 And he brought Yardley's to North America. You know the cosmetic line? Yes.
0: Oh, my gosh. Wow.
1: And uh, he was a pharmacist from Winnipeg and moved to Toronto, went to Britain, got to know the people, the Yardley's family. And they go, hey, we would like to take Yardley's to North America. And this is, I want to say it's probably 1920 or something like that. And they said you can either um he goes, Okay, I'd love to do that. And you can either start it in Toronto or in New York. And he goes, Well, I I'm Canadian, so I I live in Toronto, so let's bring it to Toronto. And then he I mean, he brought it to all in North America. Oh my gosh. And he never believed in the stock market, so so when and he was making, I mean, a ridiculous amount of money. Um I think I heard a story he was making in the twenties sixty-five thousand dollars a year. Wow. Which in the twenties would be an obscene amount today. Yes. And he had three houses and he had drivers and and maids and gardeners and stuff. And he and he one of the houses would be for them and the kids. And because he didn't play the stock market in twenty nine when the market crashed, he didn't care. No big deal. And he was sell, you know, he was selling cosmetics, no big deal. Anyway, um, he kind of like your grandfather, the only thing out of his estate that I wanted, the only thing was the portrait of him Aww. because out of all the kids, like we used to, I remember we would have Christmas dinner at the big house. Cause he bought this, he bought this house that today is worth, I think it recently sold for 15 or 20 million. Oh my goodness. And he, and he bought it when he was 65 years old. Wow. Now, now who and like any, anyway, so and
0: 65 was old in those days,
1: 65 was old and the house was built, I think in, cause it's in the historical thing as well. And it's still standing today, Wow! but he bought it in, I talked to my sister and I think he bought it in 1957 and it was built in like 1980 or 1880 or something like oh that. Gosh. So it's, it's 150 years old now. Anyway, just, just talking about it and. I would listen to my grandfather tell stories. And when I knew him, I mean, he was old. He was 70. He lived right. to 89. But um, just listening to them and, and the values that they would have. And we would have Christmas dinner because back in the 60s and 70s, people still took the boat from Europe over to North America. And he would have business people. And instead of them going back for Christmas, he would just say, because they would come for a month, month. Why don't you come and have Christmas dinner with us? So we would have 25 people for dinner and my grandfather would play the piano. Oh, anyway, it was just. What a lovely so, story. So That's I listened so to wonderful. you talking about your grandfather and it's, I don't know, you, 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 you say we're in a crazy time and I'm sitting here I'm scratching my head. We're taking down statues. We want to get rid of history. And yet without those stories, who are we? Yeah. I mean, who are And. and some of those stories are going to be good and some of them are going to be bad, just like the failures that you and I experience. Right. Some of those stories are good and some of them are bad, but it's still part of who we are and how it shapes us. Correct. And I've never, you know, I think this is our 60th podcast. I've never told that story, That's but to listening to you about your grandfather, I can just envision a 15 year old in 1910 taking a boat across.
0: Yeah.
1: Crazy. What,
0: what bravery.
1: Yes. And your, your great grandparents must have been.
0: No idea. Never. I know. Yeah. So know. did
1: your dad ever tell you stories about your grandfather or did you know your grandfather?
0: I did not. He died the year after I was born. I just know the stories from my mom and dad. And then my dad died when I was 30. So I, I you know, as you're an adult and you want those juicy stories, yeah. I didn't get it. But I was close to my grandmother. So I did get them from her. And she was, he he built her, they were both very, very, very Catholic, and he built her a chapel within their home. And it's still there, really? although my cousins have made it a wine room,
1: <laughs> how appropriate. Of <laughs> course.
0: But she had, um, she never Jesus learned to drive. Jesus is all about
1: wine too, you know. Yeah,
0: exactly. And so uh, she would go in there and pray every day, and um, she had her own little, I can't even, I'm sorry, I'm bad Catholic, lapsed Catholic. So whatever you kneel on. Um, And it was beautiful with stained glass and it was this beautiful, beautiful room. So yeah. And they were, they were a big part of the whole Catholic scene in Lake Oswego.
1: So do you think when you're doing your business um, on a regular basis, and that's such bad English, but it is whatever came out of my mouth. (laughs) When, when, do you ever think of your grandfather, even though you didn't know him, but the stories?
0: I do. And I think about, you know, I really think about what, how, um, how all of this has trickled down to me. I'm the youngest of 19 grandchildren on one side and okay. nine on the other. And, uh You are Catholic. <laughs> yes. Um my mom wanted 12 kids and I'm the last, I'm the, I'm the fifth. And so, yeah, that she, she That's said, a lot of kids. they said, she, they said, Mrs. Rogers, you're not going to be able to have any more children. And she threw her arms up and said, yay. <laughs> <laughs> she, she had decided it after five, that was enough. <laughs> That's a lot. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, at any rate, I think about how my entrepreneurship has trickled down both. So on both sides of my family, uh, my grandfather was an entrepreneur. My grandmother never worked um on my father's side. On my mother's side, my um grandmother was a bookkeeper, and then she was also the controller for the county in Northern California. And my grandfather was a serial entrepreneur and also was a one of the um directors of the Golden Gate Bridge. And so, wow, yeah.
1: Was he there when it was built?
0: Oh yeah, yeah. He would. He and my mom would fly down in a little plane in the 30s. They would fly from Del Norte County, which is where Crescent City is. Yeah. Okay. And they would fly from there to San Francisco. And he would be. He was part of part of that whole board of directors that was designing, or as a part of the directors that were putting together the bridge and helping to get it built.
1: And that's one of the monuments of the world.
0: It really is. It's pretty. So, so I look at that and then I look at my parents and my dad worked for other people. And then at about 40, he was able to, um, buy into a lumber yard and, uh, a, a basically a giant hardware store. And, um, and my mom owned a, a plant nursery. And so, <clears throat> excuse me i i I've seen entrepreneurship. both of my brothers were contractors. I'm a contractor as well as an interior designer, so okay. I feel like you know it runs in my blood. The lumber yard runs in my blood, and so, housing runs in my blood
1: okay, so when you travel and I know you travel a lot yes, you love to travel i do so do you look at the architecture and interior design like absolutely have you ever been in any of the mansions? in Rhode Island.
0: Yes. Oh, my gosh. They're incredible. We did a retreat there with Gail Dobie. Um, Yes, it was the craziest thing. I got stuck in Rhode Island for three days.
1: It's a beautiful state. It's
0: such a beautiful state. And those mansions are unbelievable. Yeah. We went through through the Vanderbilt Mansion. It's incredible. It's spectacular. It really is.
1: So, And you look at it, and it's 138,000 square feet. And that was their summer place. They would take the train up for anybody who doesn't know. They would they lived in New York and they had a a city block. I think it was two hundred and twenty square feet, was their home in Manhattan. Thousand. Two hundred
0: and twenty thousand. Oh, that's what I
1: mean. So I'm sure I sorry. knew what you meant. Yeah. <laughs> it <laughs> yeah. wasn't a closet. It yeah, was yeah. two hundred and twenty thousand. <laughs> yes. And then you look at that house, because we've been through that same house. Yes. And it's just, you can just see when you walk in, I don't know if you feel this, but when I walked in, I could feel the elegance and the parties that they would throw. Yes. And the gowns the ladies would wear and the respect that the men would have for the women. Yes. And it was just, and then you go into the kitchen and while the kitchen was big, it was so far off everything. It was at the front of the house on the front left of the house and so when you walk into these places, do you take ideas out of them that you can incorporate?
0: Absolutely. I have my camera going nonstop Are in these okay. places because you look at the millwork that you don't see anymore. You look at the ceilings and the millwork on the ceilings or the millwork on the walls, and it's so inspiring. Or the wallpaper, and it's inspiring. Or just the color schemes that you, know, you might not think of pulling these different colors together. So absolutely. And the intricacies of how, of the inlay in the, in the woodwork and the intricacies in how a couch was um, maybe a two-sided couch and how beautiful they were. They made it so you could have a conversation with somebody on the other side of the couch. And yes, I look at those and get tons of inspiration.
1: I forgot about the two-sided couches. Yeah. Or you could actually sit on both sides of it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, I forgot. And they're beautiful. They're yes. so regal. Yes. You, uh, you told me a story about going to the Cosentino tour yes. in Spain.
0: Oh, my gosh. Tell me about this. So could- and, and,
1: and, and also, if I can just, because Trip- uh, I Eva? want your brain to think about this. Tell me about if you had a paradigm shift on what your thoughts were on their materials and how to use them.
0: Yes, and yes. So, okay. yes, I went, and it's been quite a while now. Um, I believe it's been about eight or 10 years. And and actually, I may go back again this fall. So, uh, I, Cosentino makes silestone quartz, and they were the original inventor of silestone. Mr. Cosentino, and it's still a family owned business, um, developed this. And you talk about somebody who failed. He failed and failed and failed. He went bankrupt multiple times. And the amazing thing is he had such a desire to take care of the people in his town that he kept trying. He kept wanting to make it successful so the people in this little tiny town of, Al- Al- I'm going to say it wrong, but Almeria, Um Spain, And this is in Spain? In Spain. Okay. It is, uh, it, and it's just a precious little town. It's tiny up in the mountains. Um, there are quarries everywhere, and they use the quarries
1: to like put... the North Mountains up near Andorra. Okay. Uh,
0: yes, I believe so. Okay, um, and so he he kept failing, and things were not working. He was he he was struggling, and they he finally came up with a way to make quartz, but it took many, many, many times, but he was determined to make this little town successful and he's done it. He's done an amazing job. And the family is the most delightful, kind, and um, gracious host when they bring you in. And then you walk into their factories.
1: Oh, if I heard the factories are incredible.
0: You you would not know that you are in this little tiny town in the middle of nowhere, Spain, because these factories are state of the art robotics yep. that create <coughs> excuse me, they create, um they create these immense slabs that go on the side of buildings.
1: So I was told that their their main factory is a million square feet under roof. And there's very few people in it because it is all automated. That is correct. Is that right? That is correct. Okay.
0: There's about 10 people in that factory.
1: For a million square feet.
0: And it's all they're doing is running computers. They are digitally generating what needs to be generated. Everything else is robot, robots that are, um, it's it's a robotic line as well as robotic forklifts. And the, the forklifts, they're told exactly where to go and how to get there, and and then they pick up 10 slabs, and they move those 10 slabs to the other side of the factory so they can be picked up and taken on a truck to wherever they need to go. How, it's fascinating. So
1: so the grandfather or the father, whoever it was who you were just saying about failing all the time, mm-hmm. what, what year was this? I
0: don't know. I'm sorry. I don't remember. It's been a while. I'm just
1: trying to think if it was the 80s, the 70s, the 60s, whatever.
0: Honestly, I don't know the answer to that.
1: Because I just, I'm as I'm thinking, I'm thinking of the technology and the change, yes. the evolution that somebody had the vision to be able to completely. Once they, once they got their core product, correct, then they've blown up.
0: They have blown up, and I use them because they're the best. They have the best warranty in the business, and I find that I. I, I have no callbacks. <laughs> That's what we all want. Okay. We want somebody to not say, hey, I spilled red, red wine on my quartz and it's stained. Yeah. Or I dripped olive oil on it last night and I got up this morning and I now have a stain. I don't ever get those calls with, with Silestone. And have it's you ever, amazing.
1: Have you ever heard of a company called, and they're a flooring company called Legno Bestoni? Yes. They're out in I, Naples. I, mm-hmm. Incredible story just like this one of the grandfather hiking up and it was 5 miles up the side of a mountain he would cut the trees down and he would bring them down the mountain and that's how the company started and oh so my so this is i did a podcast with the great granddaughter and it wasn't really a business he was just servicing the people in this part of italy wow and then I wanna say twenty years ago they started they came over to the States and they go, Hey, we're gonna we're gonna take this idea and we're gonna run with it here in the States and now and their stuff is magnificent. Mm-hmm. I'll send you their contact info. Oh, I'd love that. Yeah. Yep. I mean just fantastic. another like I'm listening to these stories and I love these stories. I was with a buddy of mine who owns a bunch of car dealerships this weekend. And he was telling his wife, okay, so-and-so is going to Detroit. They have to go to Dearborn to the Ford Museum and the Ford Mansion. And I didn't know this, but Henry Ford's best friend was Thomas Edison. You oh, talk wow. about failing. Yes. This, this Cosentino gentleman failed and failed. Well, Edison failed 10,000 times on how to make a light bulb. And this was Henry Ford's best friend. And they lived next door to each other.
0: Yeah. And it's, you know, there's a wonderful saying about failing upward. My my older son is an entrepreneur right now and trying to make a go of selling things on Amazon. And we talk about failing upward and what that looks like. Failing upward means you've got grit, determination, and persistence. You don't give up. It didn't work today. That doesn't mean it's not going to work tomorrow or the next day or the next. But you're continually trying to better yourself.
1: So I had a conversation with the uh, uh, our publisher up in Canada yesterday, and she said that she was talking to some people in Vancouver, and they're concerned about the recession. And I go, the recession, they should be excited about the recession, not concerned about it. I agree. And first of all, when things are good, there are so many people that make, it, make a success of life because everybody's making a success. A
0: monkey could make a success. Right. <laughs>
1: And they're lousy contractors, but things are so good. People are throwing money at them. And then those people are disappointed with the result because they're not very good at what they do. And I said, what you need to do is you need to ask these people. Like you and I are 60 or I'm 59. I don't know how old you are. (laughs) 62. Yeah. Same age. And I go, just ask him, hey, did you go through the 08 recession? Yeah. And you're still here. Did you go through the 99 recession? Yeah. And you're still here you go through the 82 recession which was horrific yeah and you're still here why would you get upset or nervous or concerned about the recession this is the best thing that could happen to us because it re- it kind of resets
0: it recalibrates yes it completely recalibrates everything and it's you know i and and that's i where i learned my grit my resilience My persistence was I got my tush out there and I learned marketing, guerrilla marketing. How can I do this? And I also learned that I had a contract, I'd had a contractor's license because I have to in the state of Oregon to install one single thing. And do all
1: interior designers have a contractor's license? <laughs> loaded question not intended to be <laughs>
0: loaded question you, you could probably answer that better than i can i, can I don't know the I answer know to that. that but the uh, i learned okay. um that if you do not have a contractor's license you cannot schedule one single person to install anything okay i didn't know that there you go Now you learned something new today. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so I have my contractor's license. I learned that guess what? I'm a damn good remodeler. And when people start coming to me and saying, hey, I've got this new house and I don't like my bathroom. Can you help me? Yes, thank you. I can. And I started with my biggest remodel at that point. My biggest job to date was during the 08 recession. And it was amazing. It was one of the best experiences I've ever had. <laughs> you're, you're talking about funny stories. That's a funny story. Um, the woman used to work. Yeah, well, <laughs> she used to work in Alaska as a dancer. We'll call it that. Okay. And there's a very famous place up in Alaska <laughs> okay. that, that exotic dancers worked yes. and she worked up there and, and that was your client. Mm-hmm. And she
1: was there a pole in the house?
0: There was not. <laughs> there was not. She had gained weight because she had bad knees and bad back and okay. bad all kinds of things. Yep. And so, uh, but she had um, a client from those days that took care of her, and then they got married, and he bought her this house, and I remodeled it. And so it was a very, very, very interesting project to say the least. She was very enamored with Alaska. So we did many things that reminded her of Alaska. We did a custom mosaic behind her sink that looked like an airplane, a float plane landing um, in front of Denali. And uh, we also did some glow-in-the-dark tiles in her bathroom. <laughs> she said, I want Google Earth to see me. <laughs> and I said, you get nine. <laughs> you can't have more than nine. Really? Yes. And well, then that's... the people who bought the house from her. Ripped were... it out? No. Oh, Lovely couple. We ended up doing a little little remodeling work, and I helped them with some things. And they um, they had no idea that the tiles glowed in the dark. And so I did get to tell them that.
1: <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. <laughs>
0: anyway funny story
1: (laughs) okay as we wrap up uh last question for you is yes where do you see either your business or the industry in five years
0: in five years i hope that the industry is elevated to a point where i am a firm believer in a rising tide rises all boats raises all boats um and i would love to see more collaboration between designers more rather than a competitive feeling of, you know, we all need to hold on to our s- trade secrets. Yep. I, I am a firm believer in anything I can share with other designers. I love to share. One of the reasons I'm coaching is I love, I love people learning from my mistakes. Make your own, but here, here's mine. Please don't make this mistake. Right. And, and it gives me joy. To help somebody else, help a younger designer elevate themselves. So I would love to see a continual elevation in the business of each other helping each other, of designers helping each other, of coming together. Um, you know, we have a home builders association. It would, and I realize there's ASID, but I would love to see more local grassroots helping each other, um, within the design industry.
1: Yeah. I'm a big fan that there's good competition and there's bad competition, bad cost competition. There's no need for that, no. but good competition, it motivates you.
0: Yes, it does. Absolutely. And there's
1: more than enough work to go around for Always. everybody.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, as you were talking about the recession, I remembered, in fact, I ran into a, an, a, an old, um, friend of mine who was a designer about a month ago and sh- during the recession, she was like, I can't do it. I'm exhausted. And she went to work for, um, one of the garbage companies. <laughs> and, and so the, 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 the it, it separates the wheat and the chaff, yeah, so to speak.
1: Well, thanks for spending an hour. Yeah. Thank I you. I can talk to you for. Ever.
0: Thank you. I end you. Yeah. We have such a great time together. I, we
1: really do. Yeah. So until next time, I'm Ted Bambridge, Patty Jober, Compliments Home Interiors and Ben. Thank you very much. And we'll talk soon.
0: Thank Bye. you for having me.
1: Thanks so much for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us some feedback. We'd love to hear from you. You can find everything discussed in this episode and more in our show notes below. I'm Ted Bainbridge, and you've been listening to Friends of Build Magazine podcast.